Psalm 23 is David's reflection on the promise of God to lead him, and you, by the way, through the darkest days and most difficult changes of your life without fear or want or worry. It's a promise to not only be with you through it all, but also to fill your life with his greatest blessings and mercies and unfailing love all along the way. And then when this life has run its course, God makes another promise that you will be with him in the house of the Lord forever. If you read the story of David's life in the Bible, you know that this psalm is not only a reflection on God's promises for the future, but it's actually a testimony to what God had already done in David's life. Yet notice, as much as David overcame in his life, if you're familiar with the story, as much as he'd been through and accomplished in spite of the overwhelming difficulty and opposition he so often faced, David's testimony isn't focused on himself or what he accomplished or overcame. No, the focus of David's entire testimony is on God and what he had overcome and accomplished in David's life. Uh, David's testimony points people directly to God, not back to himself. Emily Sachs said, the purpose of sharing a testimony is to glorify God's sacrifice and his grace, not our sin or even how we respond to God. It's all about God. That was certainly the case with David's testimony. Just read the first three verses again. The Lord, he says, is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. David's testimony is all about God and what God had accomplished in David's life. And he was so confident that God would fulfill every promise in his life that even when faced with the possibility of death, David did so without fear or hesitation because he knew that no matter what, God was with him. The same God who had already proven himself to David over and over again, the same God who used David against all odds to defeat Goliath, the same God who protected David from King Saul, who used all of his resources to try and hunt down and kill David, the same God who restored David even after sinning against God in the worst way. So David was able to testify on his best days and on the worst days with confidence. Why? because he wasn't testifying about himself, right? He wasn't testifying about who he was or what he had done or what he had overcome. No, he was testifying about God, about who God was and about what God had done and what God had overcome, including death itself, which is why David was able to say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which he'd done many times, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Because unlike David and every other human being who would ever come before or after him, God never lost a battle. He saved David's life over and over and over again and continued to prove himself over and over again. Undefeated and undeterred against the attacks of the enemy, the hostility of the world around him, and David's own sin, God could always be counted on for the win as long as David learned to rely on God through all of it. So it didn't matter what David would ever face. Even the threat of death itself couldn't keep him from sharing his testimony about who God was and what God had done, which is not only, by the way, a lesson for all of us, 
but a timely one at that because as we've seen and we'll continue to here in uh, John's vision as we continue working our way through the book of Revelation as the final days of this final age of the earth continue to draw to a close, God is planning to increasingly use our testimony about him working in our lives to save the lost and defeat the enemy. Listen, even if it costs us our lives here on earth, which means we have to be ready and willing to share it on our best days and on the worst days with the same confidence that David had. Because look, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ by nature is intention with every other worldview. It was actually intended to be from the beginning. Okay, the gospel was never intended to work in tandem, in harmony with other worldviews. And so there's this inherent friction that occurs anytime an unbeliever is confronted by the reality of the gospel because quite frankly, it is antagonistic of all contrary viewpoints. In fact, in many ways, the gospel is exclusive. People don't like to hear that, but if you read the Bible, it's clear the gospel is exclusive by design, which is why it tends to offend people who don't follow it, which may sound like a mistake or a bad idea, and yet it is described throughout Scripture as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So the offense of the gospel is intentional. It's there by design, and yet over time, there are elements of the church that have attempted to soften the offense of the gospel or even remove it altogether. And so, for instance, even though the gospel directly confronts our sin, as in Romans 6.23, Paul says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even though the gospel is by definition incompatible with any and every other attempt to reach God and transcend this mortal life, Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 16, in Acts 4, 11, and 12, Peter said this, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I mean, like it or not, those are very exclusive statements, even though following this gospel will, according to Jesus and just about every other biblical writer, including John, cost us everything. Jesus said, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 33. And so even though scripture very plainly describes the offensive and costly nature of the gospel, some elements of the church have attempted to soften the message or even remove the offensiveness of it altogether. And I'm telling you, one of the surefire ways to do that to soften the gospel or to remove the offense of it is to make your personal testimony to the gospel more about yourself than it is about Jesus. And I'm telling you, people do that every day because there's been this assumption in the modern church for quite some time now that softening the message would make following Jesus more appealing to more people, that if we removed the offense of the gospel, we could make it more attractive, easier for people to swallow. And so we've championed personal testimonies in the modern church that focus more on the individual and what we've overcome than they do on Jesus and what he has overcome. We make heroes out of people 
Christian people, good people, people who love God, look at what he overcome, look at where he is now, look at who he is. I better buy his book. I mean, whatever it is, we make heroes out of people and we point back to them with a test with their testimony rather than pointing to Jesus. And of course, the greater the battle has been in their lives, the greater the testimony as far as we're concerned. Look at everything I've been able to overcome in my life. We thought that would be a more effective way to connect uh, with lost people, when in reality, all it actually did was weaken the message to the point that people have become completely indifferent toward Christ and his followers. Because we've made our testimony all about us, who we are, what we've done, how tolerant and likable and accepting of basically everything we are that now we stand for almost nothing. And in the process, we're losing credibility with the world around us because when you remove the offense of the gospel, you're stripping the message of its power, the power to transform lives, to overcome sin, to identify yourself with Christ in his suffering and in his glory by giving up all that you have and all that you are in order to follow him. Listen, even if it means giving up your own life. That, that is a difficult, yes, and simultaneously very powerful and polarizing message, one that focuses on Jesus Christ and his uncompromising stand for the gospel. So you understand, it's, it's, not, it's not that your personal story shouldn't be a part of your testimony. Of course it should be. But listen, your story is only there to validate his story at work in your life. If you share your story, your testimony with someone without telling them about Jesus and what he's done for you and for them and for the rest of this world in the process, if you don't tell them about their own sin and need for a savior, if you don't tell them that he's the only way for them to be saved, then listen, you haven't shared the gospel. You've just shared a personal story about the goodness of God in your life, which is great, but that's not the gospel. Your testimony is supposed to testify to the gospel at work in your own life. But that will never happen if your goal as a Christian is to never offend anyone with the message that you live by. Okay, if that's your goal, then you're either going to have to suppress certain aspects of the message or redefine them as so many people are fond of doing today so that no one will ever be offended by what you have to say. Yet as we've been discussing throughout this sermon series, there's great power that also comes at a great cost for testifying to the gospel at work in your own life, which we'll see again today as we finish the second half of this sermon that we started last week. So let's pick the story back up where we left off and see how the enemy is actually defeated in our lives when we're willing to pay the ultimate price for the opportunity of sharing the gospel in our testimony to other people, to lost people. And actually last week we read all the way through this chapter already, so we're gonna go back and start at verse seven through 12 as a review, okay? So let's read it together. Revelation 12, we'll start with seven through 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. 
Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Uh, If you were here last week, you'll remember that this part of the story is an all-out attempt on the part of Satan to regain his position in the presence of God. So this is not a reference back to the original expulsion of Satan from heaven. And of course, we know that Satan still had access to heaven after that original event, which we see in Job 1 and 2, also uh, Zechariah 3. And so this is the, the cosmic prelude, if you will, to the final consummation where Satan declares war, first in heaven and then on the earth against the people of God in the last days. And so after being defeated by God's army, led by Michael, the guardian angel of Israel, according to Daniel 12:1, who according to the apocryphal books, not a biblical book, but the apocryphal book of 1st Enoch chapter 90, which says uh, he will deliver Israel in the last days from tribulation. So Satan is cast down to the earth once again, where he launches one last assault on the church knowing his time is short. So he turns his anger on the faithful remnant of believers on the earth where he will ultimately be overcome yet again by faithful believers. And yet as the end for Satan draws near, his hostility toward the church increases with great intensity. As uh, mentioned last week, it's not just the physical persecution that is in play here, because the Old Testament text in their original language described the story as much as a courtroom scene as a legal proceeding as they do a physical war, okay? Satan is accusing the saints of unfaithfulness. He's saying to God, listen, God, these people of yours don't deserve salvation or your grace or your blessings. It's an argument he's been making, by the way, against us for a very long time, as we find in Zechariah 3, 1 through 5, and other places where courtroom scenes are depicted with Satan accusing the saints before God. It's also a common theme in ancient Jewish writings, including the Midrash, where Satan levels legal claims against God's people. And listen, he always does it according to God's law, God's own word, which of course says the penalty of our sin necessitates a judgment of spiritual death, not a reward of salvation, which happens to be true, right? We don't deserve salvation. Our sin does demand payment, judgment retribution, God's wrath, according to God's law. And yet the very thing that satisfied God's wrath is the very thing that Satan refuses to recognize because it is the very thing that has defeated him and his evil plan for this world. As John makes clear in verse 11, it's the blood of the lamb, which was point one in the sermon outline that we worked through last week. So we're not gonna go back through all of that again today other than to revisit verse 11 where John explains that they, meaning the believers, have conquered him, meaning Satan, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So the enemy of our souls is conquered by the blood of the lamb, that is the gospel, and by the word of our testimony, that's point two, our testimony to what? To the work of the gospel in our lives which takes us back to the courtroom scene because in the courtroom, charges are levied against the accused. Verse 10, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So Satan has levied his accusations against the people of God. He lays out our guilt that deserves and demands payment. 
punishment, a just reckoning. And of course, in the courtroom, after the accuser makes his accusations, the defense is granted the opportunity to testify to their own innocence. And ultimately, a judgment is rendered based on the evidence that is presented. And so Satan, the accuser in this court case, is defeated after the word of their testimony. The word of the testimony of the saints. Testimony to what? Testimony to the blood of the Lamb, the gospel. You understand, when the prosecution rests its case against the people of God, the believers are not responding with the feel-good story of the year. They're not talking about how, you know, God blessed me with a new house or how he helped me overcome my fear of flying or how I've been able to bless so many people in my life because of the heart of compassion and generosity and humility that he's put inside of me, right? They're not showing him pictures of themselves on Facebook doing wonderful things for God. No, they're testifying to the fact that they were broken, lost, hopeless, helpless, sinful, wretched, poor, pitiable, blind, and naked sinners barreling their way straight to hell until something unexpected happened, something completely unpredictable, something so supernatural, something so unbelievably powerful that it defeated the sentence of death hanging over them and cast down every accusation against them because for every lost sinner who deserves death, that would ever come to Jesus in humble repentance, the moment his blood was shed on that cross, every charge, every sin, every transgression, every evil deed, and every reason we should ever suffer God's wrath was defeated once and for all. You see, their, their testimony is the proclamation of the gospel working in their own lives. It's the story of how the gospel of Jesus Christ saved them. You know why? Because they know they can't defend themselves apart from Christ. So they don't even try to talk about how good they are. No, they turn their accuser's attention away from themselves and right back onto Jesus. Do you get it? Your testimony is meant to point other people to Christ, not back to you. That's why the enemy is defeated by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony because the focus of our testimony, just like David's, is not supposed to be what we've done in our lives or what we've overcome in our lives. No, the focus of our testimony is supposed to be what he has done in our lives and what he has overcome in our lives. Do you know why? Because that's the part the enemy cannot argue with. It also happens to be the part that people cannot argue with. They may reject the gospel, but they cannot argue with what the gospel has done in your life. Unless, of course, there's no actual evidence of it at work in your life. Listen, this is why it's so important that your testimony, the words that you speak, and how you actually live your life are communicating the same message. Right? As John MacArthur said, you're the only Bible some unbelievers will ever read. For many people, you are the only representation of Christ they will ever know. Let that sink in. There are people in this world whose only knowledge of Jesus Christ is based upon what they know about you. Which means their entire understanding of who he is and what he is like is entirely based upon what you, uh, who you are and what you are like. Now with that in mind, what does Jesus look like for them? Is he someone they want to follow? Or someone they want to run away from? 
Is he someone they can trust? Or someone they have to be guarded around? Is he someone who always seems to be giving or someone who always seems to be taking? Is he someone who clearly, undeniably loves them? Or is he someone who's indifferent about them? What does Jesus look like to them? Listen, all you have to do to answer that question is look in the mirror. Because if you profess to be a follower of Christ, how you actually live your life is all that some people will ever know about Jesus. Of course, the way that we live our lives is determined by what we actually believe. That's why James, the brother of Jesus, said faith apart from works is dead, James 2.26, because the way you live is determined by what you believe. And so if your faith in Christ is genuine, if you truly believe in him and in what he said and what he taught and what he did, then people will see Jesus in you. They will. Because whether you like it or not, your life is a reflection of what you believe, which raises an especially important question. If people do not actually see Jesus in you, because I think our, our tendency as professing Christians is to focus on behavior instead of belief. So when a professing believer's life is not actually reflective of the life of Christ, we tend to question how they behave instead of questioning what they believe. In fact, it's become off the table, completely taboo to ever question what anyone thinks about anything anymore. And yet your behavior is nothing more than a product of what you believe, which is precisely why the biblical writers, including Jesus, questioned people's faith wherever there was questionable behavior. The Apostle John said, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him, 1 John 3, 6. In other words, habitual, we're talking about unrepentant, sinful behavior. We're all sinners struggling, right, with sin. We all struggle with sin. But unrepentant, sinful behavior is an indication that you haven't actually placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, according to John. How you behave is a reflection of what you believe. When Peter was overcome by fear and began sinking in the sea, even though Jesus had just called him out of the boat to come to him, Jesus didn't say to Peter, why are you afraid, oh, you of bad behavior? No. He said, why are you afraid, oh, you of little faith? Matthew 8, 26. In other words, Peter, do you believe in me or not? Jesus didn't question Peter's behavior. He questioned Peter's faith based on his behavior. The truth is Jesus questioned people's faith all the time based on their behavior. We don't have time to go through all of that today. But listen, how you behave is it's merely a, refl a reflection of what you believe. That's true in all facets of life. So look, if your life today does not reflect the life of Christ at all, and again, you understand we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about your life pointing other people to Jesus because the truth is believing in Jesus isn't just about saying a sinner's prayer at some point in your life. No, truly believing in Jesus is to abide in him according to him. He said this, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do exactly nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. John 15, 4 through 7. Okay, being a Christian means abiding in Christ. It's the ancient Greek word meno. It means to dwell or to remain. 
So truly believing in Jesus means abiding in Jesus, which by the way is used 118 times in the New Testament alone. You know how many times the sinner's prayer is used in the New Testament? Zero. It's not there. Okay, to believe in Jesus is to abide in Jesus, to dwell, to remain, to live there. It's not saying that, uh, that a prayer of repentance, by the way, and faith is wrong. It's not wrong. Of course, we do that here all the time. But we do it as a first step toward a lifetime of what? Abiding in Christ. And listen, when your believing turns into abiding, right? When, when he called those 12, uh, 12 apostles, the disciples in the beginning, some of them didn't know anything about him. They had no faith in him. They had no relationship with him. He didn't say, come have a personal relationship with me. Pray this prayer. No, he walked up to them and said, hey, come follow me. Stop what you're doing. Leave your job. Leave your family if need be. And come follow me. Their, their believing turned into abiding. When your believing turns into abiding, other people will see Jesus in you. Because your life is a reflection of what you believe, what you abide in. It may not be a perfect life. Obviously, we, we all still struggle with sin. But we also practice repentance. And it's that genuine pursuit of Christ-likeness in our lives that leaves no doubt about what you believe because of the reflection of Christ people see in you. So just ask yourself if you profess to be a Christian. Ask yourself if I was the only example of Christ that an unbeliever would ever experience in their lifetime, what would Jesus look like to them? And if the answer does not reflect the Jesus we find in Scripture, then maybe it's time you asked another question. What do I actually believe in? I ask myself all the time, does my life reflect Christ right now? Sometimes I don't like the answer. Do I really believe what he said? Is my testimony to other people all about me and what I've overcome? Or is it all about Jesus Christ and what he has overcome in me? Michael Horton said, if the focus of our testimony is our changed life, we as well as our hearers are bound to be disappointed. So John explains that the enemy is defeated by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony, yet there's one more element to this court case, if you will, that we don't want to overlook. It's the last part of verse 11. Let's read it again. He says, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Okay, we know that the gospel, what Jesus did for us, defeats the enemy. And we know that our testimony to that gospel at work in our lives defeats the enemy's accusations against us. But how are we able to stand up so boldly and share that testimony when persecution and even death are staring us in the face? It's when we love not our own lives, even unto death. Right? Even, though, even though our case in court has been won, the enemy is determined to exact vengeance on the people of God. Let's read it, verse 13, to the end of the chapter. And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd been who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to, help, to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. 
Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So Satan has his day in court against the people of God and he's soundly defeated and expelled from heaven. And yet rather than accepting his defeat, he's determined to exact vengeance, if not by legal means, then by illegal means. Satan is literally hell bent on making believers pay with their lives one way or the other. In other words, if God won't exact his wrath on these people, then Satan will exact his own. And so for three and a half years, he pursues and murders those who would stand for the gospel in those final days. And yet the remnant of believers still on the earth, instead of shrinking back and becoming silent to avoid persecution and death, they're determined all the more to testify to the gospel. Grant Osborne says, it is clear that the church at this final period of terrible persecution does not go into hiding so as to avoid the wrath of the beast, but maintains its evangelistic efforts to the very end. They refuse to live for themselves and to behave in such a way as to avoid persecution. They love not their own lives, even unto death. They're willing to be martyred for the sake of their testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, when you don't cling to this earthly life, then there's really no threat Satan can bring against you that can stop you from testifying to the gospel to lost people, right? Because then truly, to live is Christ and to die is gain, Philippians 1.21. This is what Jesus meant when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, Mark 8.24. It's the cost of following Jesus, the ever-present reality that we may suffer persecution and even death for doing so, especially in these last days described by John. Yet it's okay, because we do not belong to this world. We belong to Christ. You understand this world is not our home. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Some translations say you're foreigners and strangers on this earth. Okay, the, uh, part of the cost of following Jesus is living in a place that is not our home. And so we should not endear it, uh, ourselves to it to the point that we no longer Uh, desire to be in our real home, our true home. Paul said, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, 2 Corinthians 5, 2. This is precisely what Daniel and his friends experienced when they uh, were exiled to Babylon. For many years, Daniel prayed and longed for his homeland, and yet he wasted no time being idle, a stranger in a foreign land. In fact, Daniel was more productive for God while in exile than most people would be in their native lands, and yet Daniel never considered himself at home in Babylon. Listen, John was exiled to the island of Patmos, but he didn't simply try to make the best of it until he died. No, he received and recorded the revelation, and yet he never considered Patmos to be his home. And just like these men, we are exiles. We're strangers in a foreign land. But if we aren't attentive to the gospel, if we allow ourselves to become enamored with this world, we stop longing for our true home to the point that we cling to this world instead of clinging to Jesus. That's why Jesus says you're not of the world. In fact, he said the world will hate you because of me. So don't lose your perspective while you're here. This is a temporary stop on our journey. There's work for you to do while you're here. Gospel work, eternal work. Listen, costly work. So keep your eyes fixed on me, Jesus says, and your heart's longing for home because at times it's going to get tough. 
fact, it's going to cost you your whole life. We know that may not mean an early physical death, martyrdom. It could. It certainly has meant that for many. In fact, Jesus even points out that the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. John 16, 2, which has been continually fulfilled since Jesus said it, by the way. There's historical evidence that some of the early rabbis taught that killing those who were considered to be heretics, including Christians, could be an act of divine worship. We know that's certainly how the Apostle Paul, before his conversion, viewed his own persecution of the church, just as Muslim terrorists believe they're in the service of God when they kill Christians today. So laying down our lives for Christ certainly can mean physical death, but listen, for most of us, taking up our cross and following him, laying our lives down means giving up anything and everything that stands in the way of accomplishing the mission that he set before us, which includes the refusal to experience any kind of persecution or disruption or discomfort for the sake of the gospel. You see, if we allow the hunger for popularity or uh, uh, the desire to be liked by people to alter the message, if we allow the desire for comfort to silence us, if we allow longing for acceptance from people to compromise the truth in our message, if we allow the perceived need that we have in this country for safety to keep us from boldly proclaiming the undiluted gospel, then we become impotent, ignorable, easily dismissible, I'm telling you, the world doesn't need us to be more likable or popular or trendy or comfortable. The world needs us to be honest, even if it offends them. Which means we have to be willing to be offensive. I'm not talking about being obnoxious, an obnoxious person. I'm talking about being willing to share a message that is inherently offensive all by itself, if that's what it takes for you to carry out your calling. It's counterproductive when we attempt to soften the message or even remove the offensiveness of it at all. Because listen, if it doesn't cost you anything, then it isn't worth anything. The gospel is costly. It costs Jesus his life, and sharing it with others just might cost you yours. That's why it's so valuable, because of what it costs, right? If it doesn't cost anything, then it isn't worth anything. It's why the world needs to see and hear the testimony of the gospel from people who love not their lives even unto death so they understand the profound value of the message and the price that was paid for them. Blaise Pascal once said, I believe those witnesses who get their throats cut. Okay, look. The enemy has been defeated. He lost the battle against Jesus when Jesus gave his life on the cross. He lost the battle against God's angels in heaven when he was cast down to the earth. And he lost the battle against God's people when he brought accusations against us in the heavenly courtroom. And so all that he has left is to try and drag as many people left here on earth to hell before he's destroyed once and for all. Do you understand the only thing standing between him and those lost people? is us, the church, you and me. That's the entire reason we exist as a local church, to make disciples and reach the lost. Because this world is running out of time, and this is the last battlefield the enemy has to fight on, which means it's time for us to take the fight to him. 
to snatch lost people from the fire by the word of our testimony, by sharing the gospel, loving not our own lives, even unto death, if that's what it takes. Let's pray.